Thank you so much for having me here. Oh, that is a heavy mic stand. I didn't expect it to be so heavy. It won't blow over in the wind, I suppose. Um, it, is, it is a privilege to be here. Um, my work right now with Pastor Rick Warren is um, focusing on, we, it's called finishing the task. It's a mission entity is what we're calling it. Um, and it's about how do we get the gospel to the least and the last reach people groups of the world, but also mobilizing the, the local churches like Knox to think locally, nationally, and globally. And it aligns very deeply with my passion because there are two things that I'm very passionate about. Global missions is one of them, and it is young people. And so when Nestor, Pastor Nestor approached me to think about what I can share, it was like intergenerational continuity in the kingdom of God for his kingdom work. And that just resonates very deeply with me. When you look at different parts of the world, there are nations that are so young. I just read this article, I think it was from CBC, um, it was an online article saying that um, Canada was now a super-aged country, right? And a lot of our young people come in because of the immigrant people groups and their young people that are coming in. We're, our birth rate by ourselves is not accelerating. And you've got countries like Japan that their birth rate is like really in trouble right now, and Korea, South Korea as well. Um, but you've got countries like Niger, uh, I think it's like 56.9% of the population there are under 30. That's astounding. Um, somewhere like Sudan, um, I think it was about 40% is under 15. Astoundingly young countries. And interestingly, in global missiology, that's where the center of Christianity is shifting. We call it the global south. And so God is aware of what he's doing globally. And Toronto, I love coming to Knox because there is many generations and there's diversity. Those are two things that are built into the kingdom of God. Whether it was knowledge by the church and history or not, in the kingdom of God, diversity and generational continuity are built in from the Old Testament to the New. And that's why the heart of God needs to reflect this through the people of God. And so that's what I'm here to share with you um, this evening, most specifically about what it looks like, generational continuity in the kingdom of God. I'm gonna start with a few ideas to lay down um, our, just a framework for us as we think about what this looks like. Number one, despite what we see in culture, and some of the things that we see that are um, competing for the attention and passion and purpose of our young generation, let me guarantee you that God has never lost a generation and he will not start now. Okay? And so when we approach our young generation, whether it's in your families, in our communities, in your churches, understand that I will encourage you not to approach it with a sense of fear. Because perfect love drives out fear, has no place in how we understand and how we approach our young people. Even when it was one of the most fearful times in Israel history, when the Babylonians came, God always preserved for himself a generation. He will not lose a generation. He will not start now. Even though there are difficult times, he in his sovereignty, that's the other part, we believe in a sovereign God. Your young people, your children, your grandchildren, the young leaders of today are that age group because God sovereignly had them come into this world. He was not surprised by COVID. He's not surprised by the cultural conversations, even though we might be. And I absolutely, every fiber of my being, feel that God will draw out of them the wisdom. He will draw out of them the principles that we have done our best to imprint in them, and he will lead them on their journey. Only let us not fear that they will be captured. They will not be. It is a difficult, a challenging, it's always challenging for the living, isn't it? Right? 
this is not surprising for the church. And so that's some of the framework that I want us to understand as we go into this. Also, God is a God of generations. He introduces himself in the Old Testament to the patriarchs. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Israel, and all the people groups there afterwards. And even when Jesus set up the church at the Pentecost and the, um, the coming of the Holy Spirit, there was an understanding that this would be a generational thing. Until the day that Jesus comes, there will always be his people somewhere in the world. So let us not look upon this generational continuity as if it's an uphill battle. It's not. Okay? I believe that with the power of the Holy Spirit, with the birth of the church in the, in the first century, the enemy has always been on his heels. And we cannot let, that, um, let his ploys and the world around us fool us into thinking that the church is weak. She is not. We have a young generation that is very different um, because the way that the history has unfolded has been very dynamic. Again, having five generations possibly in, the work, in some areas of the workforce, that's huge. It's not really happened before. And when I talk, think about my father who was born in 1946 before the Korean War in what is now North Korea, they had no infrastructure at all because of the war. And now look at where South Korea is. And so those rapid changes that happen in his lifetime, and, and, and we're born into this world, we understand that the changes that are happening in world history at that pace, it's never gone that quickly before. But again, it's not because God's lost control and things are spiraling out of control. He is a sovereign Lord. He is the author of history. We need to be in step with the Spirit. And again, in our heart of hearts, let us not be fearful of what God is doing. He is intentional. And he wants us to pour into our young people. And again, we have to recognize that God's um, sovereign plan from the beginning until the end, until Jesus Christ comes, he's understood that nobody lives forever. And so again, in our families, in our communities, in our blended families, in our countries, there is this idea of continuity. And we understand it because we look at our kids, if you have kids of your own, or if your nieces, your nephews, if your teacher is a young generation, there's so much hope and ambition in them. And sometimes when we look down upon them, which is what Paul encourages us not to do, and not to let um, Timothy himself feel like he's looked down upon because of their age, but there is this sense of generational hubris, isn't there? And it goes both ways, to be frank. And so what I want to do for you this evening is un um, unpack about three stories that I think illustrate for us this generational posture that we can take towards each other and what it means to draw out of each other the very best that God has given to us. One of the um, questions that are around um, in culture is like, how do we deal with some of the cultural issues that are very hot button issues that have really polarized some areas of culture and even the church? Transgenderism gender fluidity, um, abortion, um, just everything that is out there in culture. How does the church step into this? And we worry about how our kids will approach this. And one of the reasons, and I've, I've been thinking about this for the last few years right now. When I was growing up, I grew up in um, the west end of Toronto, Mississauga, Lorne Park area, that's where I went to school. Um, the question of gender identity and the bathrooms and stuff never was raised. It was just not raised in the 80s and 90s. It is now. And so one of the things I think about is, how am I supposed to answer a question that I, was not asked to me directly, right? And I'm kind of one of those digital, analog digital generations that 
I'm still young enough in my years right now to have the question asked to me. But if I think about my father, born in 1946, he's lived his entire lifetime not having to be asked that question. So I think that the older generation, that answer is not going to come from you. It's got to come from the young people to whom the question has always been posed in the, in the core of their being. They understand that their friends are from these communities. They understand that they want to treat them with dignity because everyone has Imago Day. But we never, the older generations never had to deal with those questions. So in some, way, it, uh, some ways, it is unfair for the older generation to feel like they have to come up with the answer. And that's why intergenerational collaboration is significant because the answer comes out from the wisdom of the past, but also the knowledge of the present. Who are the faces of these people? You may not have them in their, your friend group if you're from an older generation, because it was just not as prevalent in culture, but these young people in their schools, they have to deal with it every day. And the tension that they feel in their hearts where they love their friends, they have fun with them, they learn from them, and yet the biblical principles and how the churches approach hasn't always been consistent. That is maybe not for the older generation to solve, but to come alongside the young people because that's the question that has been posed for them. The first story that I want to go to, you'll find in First um, Chronicles chapter 22. And this is, this is a story to me that speaks very deeply. And it's a story where you see the generational change between David and Solomon. David is um, an incredible character in so many ways, Incredibly, incredible in his moments of clarity when he says, you know, this is who God is, he's going out to fight Goliath, incredible in moments of um, clarity when um, he's committed sin with Bathsheba and Nathan comes and says, you are the man, and he's like, you're right, I am. So he's got these moments of incredible clarity, and then incredible, like what led to that moment of clarity when you know, Nathan confronted him. He's got these incredible moments of humanness. But in this story in 1 Chronicles 22, for me, is a moment of clarity. Because one of the things that the older generation have to understand, myself included, again, I'm 42, so I kind of feel like I'm in that middle bunch right now, but I'm realizing that there are part, things that I cannot do for the young people and that I should not do. Just because you can, this is one principle that we'll learn from this story here, just because you can doesn't mean you should, okay? Because David in this story, if you know this story, he wants to build the temple for the Lord. He has, he's the warrior king. He has achieved peace in all of the known area around Israel. God has blessed him. His favor is with him. He's gotten rid of Saul, the Philistines. There is peace. He has accumulated wealth from all his conquests. He's got political treaties. No one's going to question his power. He can gather everything, and he has everything that he needs to, to build this temple. So much so that when he suggests it to his court, and Nathan is part of that, everyone's like, you should do it. It is a good thing. It is a godly thing. But just because he can doesn't mean he should. And so when Nathan goes back, everyone's like, yes, we'll go get behind you. Do this. God appears to Nathan and says, you go back to David and tell him that that is not his place. He could have done it. He had all the resources to do it. He had the experience to do it. He had the labor force to do it. But God said, and the reason that's given is that you have too much blood on your hands. This is just not for you to do. And to his um, credit, this is the moment of clarity for um, David, 
he recognizes and he, look, and he remembers the Lord's promise about Solomon, his son, and how the generations after him would retain that promise of the Lord so long as they are faithful and obedient to God. And so he says, okay, so what can I do for my son Solomon? He understands that this is Solomon's job, not him. Because again, God has called a generation for each for the roles that we have to play. Now, here's where um, I again, David has a lot of clarity here, and this is where he comes alongside Solomon so he can support him. The Bible tells us in um, chapter 22 of First Chronicles, he's discovered the location of the temple. Okay, what leads to this is a moment of um, incredible disobedience as well. He's he's done the census plague is raging all over Israel, and it stops at this place, and that's where he's going to build the, um, the temple. And so David basically understands that it's going to be Solomon. And in verse 5 of chapter 22, he says, My son Solomon is still young and experienced. This is not a patronizing statement. If you're 16, you are young and experienced. I don't know what to tell you, right? <laughs> As a 42-year-old in senior leadership of missiology, I am on the young and inexperienced side. Right? I fully admit that. Rick Warren has a lot of experience in pastoral ministry and megachurch ministry and global stuff. So there's a lot that I'm learning just by being in his orbit. So, but if you're, young, if you're Solomon and David's been the king your whole life and you're just getting in there, you are young and inexperienced. That's not to be patronizing. And let me tell you, it depends on how you say it, the tone of voice. So when somebody tells you young people, for those of you in this room, that you are young and inexperienced, that's not necessarily them putting you down, but maybe it's an open door for them to say, let me pour out what I have earned in my life into you, because that is the approach that David had. So he recognizes the truth of something, okay? Um, Solomon is young and inexperienced. In the verses previous, because David's already gotten in his mind that he needs to build this temple, the verses previous to that statement, David gave orders to call together all the foreigners living in Israel. He assigns the, the, the task of preparing finished stones. He provides iron for the nails that we needed for the doors and the gates and the clamps. He gave more bronze than could be weighed, and he provided innumerable cedar logs for the men of Tyre and Sidon. Because they've, they brought so much and they're paying tribute to this king. Because he's, he's really the superpower of the day in the ancient Near East. And so what happens is that David understands he's not the one to build the temple. It is Solomon. Solomon is young and experienced. So what can now David, as the experienced elder statesman, the monarch of the days of the glory of the united monarchy, he goes right up into the line of building it and he prepares everything that he can for Solomon. He is out to see the success of his son. He can't do it for him, but whatever is inside of him that he can do, he pulls all those strings for him, gathers all the raw materials and the raw resources, financial backing. Later on in that chapter, you'll read that he calls all the people of Israel together and says, you support my son in this, leveraging all the relational capital he has that he's earned over the years so that they back his son Solomon because he is young and inexperienced. The posture of the leaders of the church today, when you look at your young people, how do we set them up for success insofar as we are able? It won't guarantee it. It just doesn't. Every generation has to choose obedience on their own. That's what Joshua says. As for me and my household, we will choose to serve the Lord. You choose what you need to do. But what is it that we can do to put them in the best possible position? And looking down upon them does not help. So how do we leverage the wealth 
of knowledge, literally funds sometimes, finances, the biblical lessons that you have learned, the hard knocks of life as God has walked by you, the broken moments of your life, to deposit into the young people so they don't have to make the same mistakes, although they'll make some. Solomon is not the perfect king. He's got a lot of problems in his um, day and age. But insofar as this temple thing is concerned, David is like, I want you to succeed. So that's what he does. In um, verses 14 and afterwards, you see the wealth of Israel at this point. He's talking to Solomon at this point, and he's like, I provided 4,000 tons of gold, 40,000 tons of silver, so much iron and brass that it cannot be weighed. I've gathered timber and stone for the walls. You may need to add more, but I've done what I can. You have a large number of skilled stonemasons and carpenters and craftsmen of every kind. You have expert goldsmiths, silversmiths, and workers of bronze. He's gone through the recipe of what it takes to build a temple. And he says, this is what I've prepared for you. And in the words before them, as he's talking to Solomon, he summoned him. He tells him, now my son, may the Lord be with you and give you success as you follow his direction. And may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding that you may obey the law of the Lord your God as you rule over Israel. You will be successful. And here's the caveat. If you carefully obey the decrees and regulations that the Lord gave to Israel through Moses. So one of the things that we can offer up to our young generation are the biblical lessons that we know in our heart to be true. You need to obey the Lord. You need to fear the Lord. It is the beginning of knowledge. These are the things that we are telling you to do because we've learned them into our lives, but we cannot do it for you. And so as he summons Solomon in his young and inexperienced years, and you can imagine Solomon standing before him, he is saying, this is what I've learned. And all the mistakes I've made in my life, that you need to obey the Lord. You need to guard your heart. Then you will be successful. And he does some of that but not all of it. And yet what David wants to do is encourage his son. And the last, and that line before he goes through all the, you know, tons of gold and um, silver is, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or lose heart. Those are echoes of what God said to Joshua when there was that leadership transition there, when Joshua himself was a, a little bit older than Solomon probably, but still a young man compared to Moses, 120 years, right? How do you fill Moses' shoes? How do, you feel, how do you fill David's shoes? And yet when he looks at his son, that rising next generation, he doesn't say, hey, you're just messing this all up. Okay, don't do this, don't do that. And he doesn't say it with that tone. He's like, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or lose heart. But he does do the very fair thing. Like grace is not free. Okay? Because Jesus Christ earned it for us. Salvation is not free in that sense. Somebody gives it to you. And obedience and blessing, it, that, those go together. God is not a pushover, so you be sure to obey. So there's no mincing of the words. God is not a, um, he's not a, um, he's an absolute God. There is good and there is bad. There is blessing and there are curses. There are clear things he outlined in the Bible. There's a posture. Love God, love your neighbor. All the things in between about contextualization, that's the wisdom he gives us as we interact. And that's what we trust God to draw out in our young people. I love this story because it reminds us that, number we don't, again, there are things that we feel like we can do, but maybe just because we can doesn't mean we should. 
It belongs to that next generation. In Acts 13, 36, it talks about David as, um, um, uh, and it says in the Bible that David um, lived his purpose in his generation, and then his feet were gathered. He died, and he joined his ancestors. So one of the things, those of us who are older in this spectrum of life, how is it, what is it, what is our generational role at this point? As a mid, you know, middle-aged person in the church community, as an older person, an older elder statesman of some sort, a counselor, a parent, what is your role as a younger person? Because we'll get to Rehoboam in just a bit, right? How is it that we can knit together what Satan always tries to divide? Understand that there is a lot of strength when the generations come together. But Satan, his MO is always to divide and conquer, always to make it discontinuous. But God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And for all the rerouting that all those patriarchs did, God was faithful in a, when those men were obedient. And so again, as we think about this generational continuity, David's posture in this story, that is something that I think we can mimic. What is it that we need to do so we can set up our young leaders, our young generation to the very best possibility and to tell them to be strong and courageous in a very confusing world. In the midst of pain, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of confusion, you be strong and courageous because this is our God. And you need to have lived it and feel that in your soul to convey it with that kind of conviction. So there's a story in Acts when the men are preaching, uh, um, the, the disciples after they meet Jesus, resurrected Jesus, they're preaching, and they're like, are these guys from Galilee? I don't know what they're, like, these guys weren't this bold before. And I'm not sure if I believe them, but I sure believe that they believe it. And sometimes that is that seed of encouragement that we can, that, that really creates that robust and deeper faith. But that's a demonstration of how we walk as we mentor and we raise up our young people. That is an incredible story, all the resources that you have. Not so we can live the glory years like Freedom 55, I know that's an older commercial. Um, it's not for you. There's a question that Rick asks when he has a group of donors, and he's always like, what is in your hand? Whether it's time, talents, and treasures is the way that he unpacks it, but what is in your hand? That's not for you. If you are a follower of Jesus, that's not solely for you. He's blessed you to be a blessing. There is a lot. A lot that God has given to the older generations. We call them boomers in sometimes their pejorative way. But nothing replaces life experience. Especially the life experience that you have given to God. All the good, the bad, and the ugly. There's so much richness in there that you cannot get when you are not that age. It is, it is for me, analogous to nuking like a ramyun dinner because you're like in college and then understanding what it takes for a Southeast Asian grandma to cook the soup and draw out all the flavors over hours and hours of marinating and just getting the flavors out and the ingredients in the right order. That is the wisdom of life. That's one of the precious gifts that God has given you to give to the next generation. Some of us have worldly resources and some of us don't. God will use that too. But one of the things that he's given us is ourselves in those stories. That's what needs to be passed down. When we look at another story, the other one I want to also talk about is Esther. Um, that is an incredible story in so many ways because you have this young woman who, um, when she, obviously she was a girl at one point, as a, there, there are liabilities against her. Okay, number one, um, she is an orphan. It's a liability today 
probably a liability, more of a liability in some other parts of Wilburn Canada. We have done our best to try to raise awareness on how to treat people and how to provide um, safe networks and places for orphans. But there's an emotional thing there with we're an orphan. We learned that um, her parents have died. Okay, so there's something traumatic, tra traumatic in her. So she's an orphan, which is a liability in her day and age. She's a female. She's a girl, which is a liability, not so much in Canada, but very much so in other parts of the world. She is Jewish, which back then, not so much in Canada, but still, I just heard of a story in Peterborough about anti-Semitic you know, remarks at the local synagogue there. This, I saw this this afternoon. Okay. Anti-Semitism, this racism, it doesn't mean that you have to be Jewish to experience it, but back then in her day and age, it counted against her. So she's got these three liabilities against her. And the one who raises her is her older cousin Mordecai. And he is like a father figure. So you don't have to be the biological parent, the teacher that is assigned to that student in the class. In the body of believers, there is a generational knowledge that crosses some of those traditional lines. There, it takes a community of believers to look at the younger generation and raise them up. And it might be just a smile as you serve strawberry shortcake to the young generation that's coming in. It could be VBS, it could be greeting at the door, whatever it is, that community feel that when you come to the body of believers that there is love there, that is huge because people don't always get that in the world around them, even from their immediate families. And so you get somebody like Mordecai who looks as his younger cousin and he treats her like his own. Okay. And when she is taken into the harem that is Xerxes, do you know, side note, sometimes we get um, Christian stories about Esther's that romanticize this whole thing. It's weird. It's not a romantic story. She is a child bride. She is one of hundreds of young women. And he might have paid attention to her for that night, but it's a weird story. Nobody wants to give, do you, any of you want to give your daughters to a random guy who just happens to be super rich and all powerful? And he can kill her whenever he wants? So let's understand the reality of this situation. But it was outside the control of Mordecai for what he could, he could not do anything. What he could do was every day walk back and forth where she was being prepped to be pretty and you know, getting all the makeup treatments and the um, cosmetic treatments so she can be as beautiful as possible before she went to him. And he asked every day who, if she's doing well. He checks up on her. You get, if you read the whole story, you get this idea that he was really invested in her. He loved her. He knew how to speak to her when she didn't want to go before the king in Esther chapter four. You know how, Okay, so you know how when you, you know what your parents are thinking before they even have to speak to you? Like, you're running around and they just give you this, you look and you're like, Gee, yeah, we're in trouble now. <laughs> That's the relationship she had with Mordecai because Mordecai knew how to speak to her so that she, he could draw out her courage. Even if, okay. So in that situation, he tells her, if you step away from this situation, God will raise up somebody else and who knows that you were placed for such a time as this. And if you don't, then you will perish with everybody else. And he just kind of does a mic drop and lets it go. He lets her simmer in it because he trusts, he, somewhere in the relationship, he trusts that he knows what he put inside of her. And all those years that are in between the text of this book, there's a relationship there. A mentoring, a discipleship, a parent relationship, or he knows how to speak to her and say, I've raised you better, is the subtext that I'm reading there. And if you don't step up, somebody else will. But this is where I draw the line. I can't do, be obedient for you. 
and she finds the courage because the relationship that she has with him and she knows, she says, I will fast if you will fast with me. And he gathers everyone he can so that they fast along with her, um, her household where a lot of maids you know, around her. They all fast together before she goes to the king and that's where she musters her courage and says, even if I perish, then I perish. We need a young generation that is like that. Like Esther, like Daniel, going before the king when he doesn't want to eat the food and challenging them, listen, give us 10 days. He knew his non-negotiables. Somebody taught that to that generation. We don't hear about Daniel um, and his friend's parents. They're the nobility of the area. Most likely their parents were killed. But something was implanted in those boys that when they went and they were taken to Babylon, they knew their non-negotiables. They knew their God. And they were thrown into the hot seat like Esther was, and they knew how to act. And you can almost see the parents, well, I don't want my kids ever to be like that. That's not your choice. Okay. What we can do is how we posture ourselves towards them. What are we going to deposit into them? And when we have the opportunity to speak courage into them and not give in to every whim because um, we have a failure of nerve to confront some of the disobedience, Mordecai in that moment steps into that space and says, this is the way I see it. This is what obedience looks like. I've lived a little bit longer than you. And so this, I know our God. And he will raise somebody else. But everywhere I look, you are the one that can do this because Haman has captivated the king's court. There is no room for any man to get close to the king. It's got to be you, a woman in the harem who has a different backdoor channel into these politics. And after she does this, she musters her courage, she obeys, she steps into that space. You can see how smart she is because she outmaneuvers Haman. And he is put on the gallows. God uses her to deliver Israel. He raises Mordecai up, and the people are, are saved in that moment from the heinous idea to kill all the Jewish people and take all their property. Esther, in, in a very real sense, she is the Christ figure in that story. We worry about the culture that is upon us. There's wars everywhere. There's always been wars in history. We have become much more aware of how, just how often and how prevalent the wars are. There's always been war. We've been, um, we've been questioned about some of the biblical um, standards that we've always held to, to be taken for granted. And there is a sense of fear. What is the world going to look like? But again, what I started with, perfect love drives out fear. In the same letter that John writes to the church, God is love. And we're not talking about Valentine's Day love. This is a holy love. This is a robust love. This is a love that says my generations will be saved. I will raise up that generation. We are just part of what God is doing. Okay? It is not up to you to save a generation. That's God. But he has given you something to be a part of that process. That you cannot shy away from. And that's where we see Mordecai stepping into that space. And again, that relationship to Esther's credit, she hears it. She doesn't take it as like, you're garbage, or you're not good enough, or you have to listen to what I say. She thinks about what Mordecai says, because she understands that Mordecai is seeing it from a place of deep love. This is a man who has taken her in when he didn't have to. This is a man who is her older cousin that has loved her, that cared for her, walked outside the harem every single day. 
This is a man who learned about the assassination attempt on Xerxes, told King, Queen Esther, and she got the credit, but she also gave Mordecai the credit. There was a trust element between these two, a deep love. And so when she heard him say that sometimes, I remember my teenage years, sometimes you shut down. Oh, my parents don't love me. That's not the case. But that's how we hear it sometimes. She was past that phase in her life, and she heard him. She heard him say, this is where God has placed you. You can do this. You have to do this. And to her credit, she is able to gather the metal of her person. It's usually used in the context of the metal of a man, the metal of a believer. In that sense, to gather all that courage and say, I am all in. And whatever be, let it be. But that's the switch that needs to flip in her brain so that she enters into this weird um, political intrigue and arranging the banquets, inviting Haman. She knows how to do this, but she, that flip in her heart needed to be switched. You ever see a kid who's got all the potential in the world, but they don't have the confidence? That's what it is, right? And that's what we need to speak into them, exactly the way that David did to Solomon. Be strong and courageous. Do not be discouraged. Okay? Do not give up. You are born as young people in this generation, in this season, and we will be gone after 40 years, but you will still be here. And there's a reason for that, because God is intentional and he has a purpose. He will not lose you. Only look to him. He will give you the answers as you need them. We don't have to prefigure everything out, because how many people made plans in COVID hit, right? God knows how he's unfolding history. He has always been sovereign and will remain so. And so the story of Esther, um, it's, a, it's a fantastic story about female leadership as well. But for me, I wanted to highlight for you that relationship between Mordecai and Esther. How deep it really goes when you understand the subtext of that relationship, what mentoring looks like, what challenging looks like to draw out the best in that child that you have mentored into a young person. And again, the response of Esther to gather her courage and receive the, it's, it's criticism, but it's constructive criticism, and she receives it well. Okay. To have that ability to absorb it, to think through it, to pray through it and say, you're right, I'm it, let's do this. Right. And so we see both sides of that equation, if you will, in that intergenerational connection. The other story that I want to talk about is Elijah and Elisha in 2 Kings. This is a great story as well. I say they're all great stories, but they are. <laughs> this is a great story. Um, so Elijah and Elisha, they're already a mentor and a disciple prophet and um, prophet-to-be, I guess. Um, rumors have it that God is going to take up Elijah. And they're hanging out together, and people are like, when's he going to take Elijah? Nobody knows, right? It's, it's this crazy rumor that's going out to all the schools or prophets. So they go to Bethel, um, and Elijah's like, okay, you can stay here. You don't have to follow me. But Elisha's like, no, I want to follow you. So they go to Bethel. And then they go to Jericho, same kind of conversation. Oh, stay here um, in Bethel. And he's like, no, 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 I will follow you. And so he follows him to Elisha, follows Elijah to Jericho. And then... They're going to head over to the Jordan River, cross the Jordan River. And Elijah's like, you don't have to follow me. He's like, as surely as the Lord lives, I will follow you wherever you go. And so they cross the Jordan River together. And again, these um, group of prophets come up to Elisha and they say, you know, they're going to God is going to take your master away. He's like, oh, I don't want to talk about it. And so Elijah at that point draws Elisha close to him and says, he looks at to his um, face and he says, tell me what I can do for you before I am taken away. 
what is it that I can do for you? Like how many times do we tell the younger people, this is what you all need to do? We never really ask them, what is it that you need from us? Because maybe there, like maybe there's something deeper that we can need, that felt need that we can provide for them or resources. We're just like putting them in the wrong places. And so that question where Elijah looks to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I'm taken away. One question, perhaps something that we can ask our younger rising leaders and our kids and our the rising generation. And Elisha, he says, please let me inherit a double share of your spirit and become your successor. Now that is bold. The double share of the spirit of Elijah? Like this is the guy on the Mount Transfiguration with Jesus. Do you know what you're asking? The double portion traditionally in the ancient Near Eastern um, culture and Israeli culture was for, reserved for the firstborn. So Reuben was supposed to get the firstborn, blessing the double portion. Um, Jacob gets it, which causes all sorts of family drama in that story. But the double portion is always for the firstborn. So Elisha is asking a very bold request and to be his successor. Double portion from Elisha. And so I look at this, and in many ways, one of the reasons why in the prodigal son, when the son asks for his portion and takes off, it's so insulting in that culture is because you're pretty much saying, I wish you were dead. I'm going to take my inheritance. I'm going to get out of here. It's very offensive. And so even though he knows that Elijah is going to be taken away to even bring it up, it's kind of like a cultural faux pas. And yet he's got the fullness to do so because when you're talking about things spiritual, why not a double portion for our rising generation? Why not? So there's a part of me that looks at Alicia, I'm like, good for you for asking. If a young person in your community, in your Bible study, your child came up to you in your Sunday school, some of the leaders that you're probably interning here right now came to you and said, I want to be twice the leader you are because you've blessed me so much because God has used you mightily. How many of you would say no? So young people, for those of you in this room, be bold, ask for it. This is the God who says, ask of me and I will give you nations. His arm has never been short. This is the God to whom Jabez prayed, enlarge the, the, my tent. Give me more so I can do more for you. We've got a limited number of years on this earth. And if you ask with any other motive, trust me, God will know. But if your heart is pure and you want to live your life for God, why not ask for it? And so Elisha asked it not for Elijah. And here's the part where I'm thinking Elijah demonstrates such insight as well. Because he could have said, who are you to ask me for that? But one of the things he recognizes, and the Bible says this, um, Elijah's reply to Elisha was, you have asked a difficult thing. And then he says, if you see me when I'm taken up from you, then you will get your request. But if not, then you won't. In other words, the power of the Holy Spirit, that anointing is neither mine to give or deny. When we look at the young generation, it is not your right to say that they are called or not. That is God's prerogative. Whether they are going to be used or anointed by God or not, you don't make that call. Nobody has monopoly of the Holy Spirit. Nobody has monopoly over God. He is not one to be manipulated or cornered into doing things just because you want to anoint a certain person over somebody else. In fact, Samuel wanted to um, anoint Eliab and all the sons of Jesse before David, and God said, that's not what I'm looking for. And so Elijah, in his insight, understands that this anointing 
this spiritual anointing. You can give away your business to some, your child if you wanted, your worldly wealth, all that stuff, but something that is spiritual, that belongs to the kingdom of God, is neither his to give nor deny, but he says, listen, you watch for this. You watch for this, and then you will know. So he gives Elisha pointers, these barometers. This is how know that you will be blessed. And then the chariots of fire come. And Elisha, that amazing imagery where he chases after the, the chariots of Israel, my father, my father, and he's just taken off. And he knows that he's got the double portion. When our lives give out, Okay, because Jesus Christ will call us home and it won't all be peaceful like on the deathbed and you fall asleep like we all want it to be kind of like that. Some of it will be unexpected. We don't know. But one of the things I hope that every single one of us, old and young, can be sure of is that the double portion has passed on for us and we have done everything we can for that rising generation. So we can in many respects, just like the servant who goes up to um, the master, well done, good and faithful servant, but not only in the stewarding of money, but our whole lives. That's what matters. And that when that young person lets us go to be home with Jesus Christ, they say, I've seen it. I'm not worried about them. I'm not worried about myself because I've received that all that I can. So th that imagery of Elisha chasing after the charioteers of Israel. My father, my father. Knowing that he's left with everything that he needs to be the prophet, the man of God in his day and age, because my goodness, there was crazy stuff that happened in his life as well. That's what intergenerational continuity could look like. And that's what I want us to think about as we think about our young generation. What is it that we can leave behind them? That sense of inner fortitude that centeredness in who God is. Yes, wealth, that's all kind of tools like David left behind for Solomon, but the most important thing is that conversation. You obey the Lord. You be strong and courageous. And sometimes because we're so distracted or worried about the conversations that are happening around our young people, we forget to say that to them. I'm not worried about you because God has got you. He does. He absolutely does. A word for our young people. In 1 Kings chapter 12, Solomon's son now becomes king. There's a whole bunch of drama. Like, like you know, you see these HBO series about all this, you know, I'm like, you, it's got nothing in the Bible. This stuff is crazy in here. Um, but anyways, Rehoboam, he's becoming king. Um, Jeroboam is off in Egypt somewhere, and they've got issues of rebellion coming up. But basically, Solomon is going to die. Rehoboam is going to be king. Solomon dies, and he kind of says, okay, so now what do I do with all this power? And he goes to the elders of Israel back then, people who have served under Solomon the whole time of his reign, understanding that the building projects that Solomon demanded on the people were very taxing on so many ways. And he goes up to him and he kind of does the, goes through the motions of saying, okay, what is your counsel on this? And they say, listen, your father was very demanding on the people. You need to ease off the gas a little bit and give them a break in your generation, okay? And he's like, all right, okay, that sounds good. Goes to his peers who have no more life experience than he does, no more life experience doing running a government or a kingdom than he does. And he asks them, what do you think I should do? And they're all like, yo, man, you're the guy. <laughs> okay, that's my paraphrase. <laughs> Tell them that your pinky finger is thicker than your father's waist, and you show them who's boss. And he's like, that's what I like. That betrays to me 
He is going to the elders out of obligation. He's not really listening. He doesn't care what they have to say. He doesn't mind them for their wisdom. It's like, okay, now I've gone through the motions. This is what I really want to hear. It's an echo chamber. It's a confirmation bias. This is what I really want to do, and all the people that agree with me, I'm going to go with them. And so young people, again, there's nothing that replaces life experience. These are the men who understood how hard it was for those building projects, the temple that they had to build. And it wasn't like they had the cranes of today. You ever go to the Colosseum and wonder how they built it? They didn't do it in like six months. It took years. The cathedrals of Europe, I was just talking with Nancy about how beautiful um, the cathedrals are in Europe. It took centuries sometimes to build some of those to its completed state. Okay? It was hard on the people. They're saying, this is how you can start off well. And he ignores them because he thinks he knows better. In the digital age, you have a young generation that is just swimming in the digital. They, they, I always surprises me how they can text without looking down on their phones. I need to look down. And, you, and yet, again, they have all this knowledge, but the connection of um, just institutional knowledge if you're working at an institution, or the life knowledge, that is lacking because you can only be 16 at 16 years old. But that is not to say that you are not useful. Okay? You know your world. You know how to get around in the digital world. You know what might work better when we're doing urban structure. Lord have mercy, somebody help our city, right? Construction, maybe there are more creative ideas just because we do not have the tools that you do when we were growing up. So they, there's a lot of innovation and creativity that the young people can bring. But how to deal with people? How to deal with your deeper pains and loss? how to apply that, how to win people over in some of those tough meetings that you might be in, the posture that you take before God and man, that courage that you have to dig deep in, that's what comes from the older generation. And so every now and then my dad will still ask me how to get into his email or certain things, and I don't know how to explain certain concepts of like phone apps because it just, he doesn't have the framework when you're born in 1946. I don't know how to explain it, so I'm trying to explain it. I'm not a technical, you know, like a digital person either. I can function, but I'm not, that's like I have to call IT sometimes. So we're, I'm like, how do you explain this to someone who doesn't have the framework? But my goodness, when I go into a meeting full of Korean men, I go to my dad, because he understands the people dynamics. He understands the worldview that they bring in. And if I want to win them over, how do I do that in a way that doesn't break the unity of the body of Christ? And it's not, about, it's not about my ego at that point. It really is how do I show them honor in the way that they will receive it? And how do we make this work together intergenerationally when I'm in some of those meetings? I go to my dad for that. I go to my mom for, she's here by the way. I go to my mom for some of the other questions too about life. Because I just, at some point you just realize that they might have more wisdom than you do, right? And the other thing about Parental knowledge is that I it just it blew my mind when I actually thought about it this way They are the only person in my entire life who knows me for every single day of my life Before they pass that is right My brother is the other one that is closest, but you know that we were growing up together right? How much can you know about your sibling when you're only two years old? He's two years older than me And so that to me is like my, my I tell you the truth my mom and my dad They know how to speak to me when they want to draw something out and they'll just leave it. And they'll, you'll wrestle with it. Oh, I wish they wouldn't say that to me. But it'll make you go through certain motions because they raised me. So there's something about that in the body of Christ that is useful. And so I just want to close with some thoughts because there, in that pink sheet on your um, table there, um, we do want to lead you into some discussions. 
So how can the church, the Christian community, help young people thrive? Not just survive or get through the next grade. There's a thriving that belongs to the people of God. When there's true collaborative um, collaboration between the generations, how do they grow? How do they contribute? Consider the environment that you're creating for them. And here's the other thing, that we forget that we were that age at one point, right? What helped you thrive? What would you like to have heard from your mentors if you did, or your parents if you didn't hear them? Or if you did hear something good, what was it that kick-started something in your heart? Okay. The other questions there, what are some areas where you, whether you are older or younger, can help in bridging the generational challenges? As somebody who's 42, sometimes I feel like I can help analog digital, I can sometimes help bridge the boomers to the Gen Zers sometimes. I feel like I can do that. So what is your role in all that? You don't actually have to be a part of a certain demographic. Some people who are older just understand young people well and vice versa, right? But what is your particular role in helping bridging that gap rather than making it further together? How do you help rather than be played by the enemy, in other words, right? And then how can the differences, how can we begin to understand the differences as a point of strength rather than dissonance? Our lack of knowledge of the digital world Okay. Again, generational hubris goes for, for um, both ways. I heard that in Taiwan, because of the geopolitical situation out there with China, there is a generation of older people who are training their young people in Morse code, just in case their infrastructure goes down. You will never get a young person knowing what that is. That's historical knowledge, right? But that might be useful for the future, depending on what happens. Okay. So that's what we call um, the strengths instead of the dissonance. So um, can I invite Pastor Nestor, or should we just go to the questions? Sure, um, we could spend around seven to 10 minutes mm -hmm. so that we could have time for Q&A afterwards. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, if we could do a table discussions based on the three questions that uh, the producer has just provided us. Yeah. Can you do that now? Thank you so much. <laughs> I'll some Q&A afterwards, so I'll stay up here. Yeah. I'll come up after. So friends, you can huddle and uh, 